repeated at 11 p.m. You are listening to Radio I, your source for printed news and information. This service is intended for listeners who are blind, visually impaired, or have other disabilities that prevent them from reading. All materials are read as written and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Radio I. For further information about this service, please call 859-422-6390 or visit our website at www.radioi.org. That's www.radioeye.org. Good morning, everybody. Happy Monday, and welcome to the new reading of the Courier-Journal for this Monday, March 13th, which is brought to our Louisville listeners via Louisville Public Media. And as you know, Radio I is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Your reader for today is Rod Brotherton. Let's look at the local forecast. Mostly cloudy today, breezy and cold Tuesday. Partly sunny and cold Wednesday. Sunshine, but patchy clouds. Thursday, pleasant with times of clouds and sun. And Friday, cloudy with a couple of showers and breezy. Saturday, chilly with sun and areas of low clouds. But specifically, today, high 44. Mostly cloudy and breezy and cold. And tonight, it'll go down to 28 and will still be mostly cloudy and cold. Tuesday, high 43, low 27. Partly sunny and cold. Wednesday, high 54, low 39, sunshine and a bit warmer. And Thursday, it'll be 65 as a high and 50 as a low, warmer with clouds and sun. Friday, we'll have some showers, high 55, low 34, breezy and somewhat cooler. And Saturday, specifically high 45, low 30, sun and areas of low clouds. Looking at the almanac, yesterday's high and low, 48 and 38, normal, 56 and 37. The record high was 81 in 1911 and the record low 16 in 1934. Precipitation through 24 hours up to sun Saturday at 4 p.m. nothing. Month to date 3.1 normal 1.66. Year to date 11.16 normal 8.46. For the sun and the moon, the sun rose this morning at 7:58. It will set at 7:48 this evening. The moon came up at 1.20, and it will set at 11.06 later this morning. And in weather history, runoff from winter snow followed by torrential rain led to massive flooding on the Susquehanna River in Pennsylvania and in New York on this date in 1936. Now let's look at the front page. Lead story today. Despite concern for education crisis, Kentucky lawmakers are reacting slowly. As the clock begins to run out for Kentucky's 2023 legislative session, legislation to address the state's literacy crisis remains in limbo. A Courier Journal investigation revealed last fall many Kentucky kids struggle to read because their teachers bolstered by the state-mandated Collaborative Center for Literacy Development, won't properly teach them how. While the center, which is based out of the University of Kentucky, is designed to help improve literacy levels, 
The Career Journal exposed how center leadership routinely challenged science-backed methods of teaching students how to read. Lawmakers quickly acted during the legislative off-season, revoking the center's contract within weeks of publication of the Courier Journal story. State education leaders declined to challenge this panel's decision, siding with legislatures that it was time for someone new to run the center. During the session, though, action has been moving slowly despite interest from lawmakers. In the next couple of years, most of our bills should be focused on this one issue, Representative Scott Lewis, an Ohio County Republican and former superintendent, said Tuesday in a literacy-focused subcommittee meeting. Getting more Kentucky students reading at grade level by the third grade, he said, is going to take care of a lot of our other issues moving forward. Extra education funds should go toward literacy efforts, he suggested, with Representative T.J. Bojanowski, a Louisville Democrat and active teacher, signaling agreement in the row in front of him. Any funding requests for reading initiatives will need to wait until 2024, when Kentucky lawmakers will create the next two-year budget. A few literacy-focused measures were still filed for consideration in 2023. Senate Bill 156, sponsored by Senator Stephen West, Republican of Paris, calls on the Kentucky Department of Education to use a competitive bid process to find the next statewide reading search research center. A new center operator would be needed to be named by July 1, 2024. Under the proposal, the future center would take a higher, tighter focus on evidence-based practices and would be required to produce an annual report showing how its efforts impacted state reading proficiency levels. KDE leadership would then recommend to lawmakers how much money the center should receive based on its outcomes. Senate Bill 156 also required school districts to adopt reading curricula deemed by KDE to be reliable, valid, and aligned to required reading and writing standards. The measure unanimously passed out of the Senate Wednesday afternoon. It still needs to get through the House before heading to Governor Bashir for consideration. We feel that this is critical legislation for supporting literacy efforts and meeting our statewide literacy goals Mickey Ray, chief academic officer in KDE's, said during the bill's committee hearing. Another bill, House Bill 189, would stop sending state lottery proceeds to the Collaborative Center for Literacy Development, instead sending $1.2 million back to the state's general fund. House Bill 189 passed out of the House Appropriations and Revenue Committee on Tuesday, but still needs three readings on the floor before it can get a House vote. House Bill 82, sponsored by Representative Tina Bojanowski, Democrat of Louisville, would require school districts to develop dyslexia policies, another issue examined in the Courier-Journal's reporting. Universities would also be required to train future educators on how to spot dyslexia. Even though Bojanowski's filed HB 82 on the second day of the session, it has yet to be assigned to a committee. If it is not assigned to and heard in committee in the coming days, it will not be able to become this law this year. Lawmakers have until March 16th 
to pass legislation to be able to override any potential vetoes from Bashir. They can also pass bills during the final two days of the session on March 29th and 30th, but they would not be able to challenge a veto. Next, community emphasizes importance of occasion. Some will use the day to mourn, some to reflect, some to gather. But no matter what, on March 13th, people across Louisville and the nation will remember Breonna Taylor. It just goes to say, I've always known she would be great, Taylor's mother, Tamika Palmer, said. She would do good things. It shouldn't have taken this. Monday marks three years since Louisville police fatally shot the 26-year-old black woman while serving a no-knock search warrant at her apartment during a botched drug investigation. On Wednesday, the U.S. Department of Justice released a damning 90-page investigation into the Louisville Metro's police department spurred by Taylor's killing. And as people affected by her death continue to process the report, the Courier-Journal spoke with several about March 13th, a day that for many now carries a weighted significance. Here's what they had to say. From Hannah Drake, a Louisville poet and activist. I will always remember that day. To me, sadly, I think that's the day our city broke and we didn't know it. That was really the day that, I hate to say it, I really saw Louisville for what Louisville is. What I think people ought to do on March 13th in light of this report Sit in some quiet, solitude time with yourself. Challenge yourself. What am I going to do to move this city forward? What can I do in the name of Breonna Taylor so there isn't another Breonna Taylor? How can I honor her life? How can I honor her on this day? Not her death, but her life. Sit with that. From Katura Heron, Kentucky House Representative. I think March 13th will always be a day that brings up good and bad feelings. I think that I will always hold in my heart the things that Breonna Taylor's family went through, things she went through on that day. But it's also a moment and a time to remember the work that we have done in the community and almost as a measure to see what we have not done. So to me, so I think, March 13th is always a day that is a gift and a curse. How do we take this day and remember the life of Breonna Taylor, her family, and the things our community has gone through? From Ja'Cory Arthur, the Louisville Metro Councilman. Breonna Taylor, for me, is a symbol of the struggle of being black in America. You can look at any stat on black Americans, black Louisvillians, and I think the one that really stands out that ignited people to take to the streets is the concept of us being significantly more likely to be killed by police. Every year when it comes up, it's a reminder of the institutions we've had to fight and struggle with eventually imploding and killing us. From Sadiqa Reynolds, Perception Institute CEO. March 13th is a day that is burned into my memory my mind, my heart, and my soul, and I feel it like it's in my bones. I think the number one thing for me to do is to honor Breonna Taylor's family, and her mother especially. I have not lost a child, 
Louisville, our city, we've lost a lot. But I don't know what it is for her to wake up in the morning and drive down the street and see her daughter's face. So if she says this is not the day I want us to remember, I think it's fine for us to sit and think about what we've been through. I think we got a lot of recovery, and I think we need to honor her wishes. From Attica Scott, former state Kentucky State Representative. It is a solemn day, and it's also a day that I know people in the community are gathering together and planning to gather together as they have for the past couple of years. It's a place of healing to be together in that way. I'll be thinking about the fact we still haven't gotten justice from our community that we were fighting for. I say that because community folk had a broad set of expectations that would rise to the level of justice, including making sure every officer involved in her murder was fired, arrested, and charged, and that hasn't happened. From Cheyenne Oswala, a Louisville protester, What I will be thinking about, personally, is the lack of justice that we still have on this case. Not only that case, but all of the people who have been a victim of police brutality, who have been killed by LMPD, and that still haven't gotten justice. The officers are still working on the force. They still have to see them in the community. They still have to worry if I call 911 and I have an emergency, is that officer coming to my house? I'm thinking of Breonna Taylor. I'm thinking of those victims, you know, and what's next. From K.A. Owens, Kentucky Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression Co-Chair. As we approach the anniversary of Breonna Taylor's death, we remember the tragedy, and we remember the hundreds and thousands of people of all colors who stood up for Breonna Taylor. We remember the hundreds and thousands of people who put pressure on City Hall and the federal government to do the right thing in Louisville. Without the thousands of people in the street, there would have been no changes in legislation, no prosecution of police officers, and no federal government intervention. Finally, from the front page, an opinion from Joseph Girth. Time to name names, ID the cops and judges who violated our rights. It's time for Louisville Mayor Craig Greenberg to name names. The frontline cops who sick dogs on people, who are already giving themselves up. The ones who use their tasers on people two and three times, when one would have been sufficient. The one who called a black man a monkey. The supervisors who let this stuff slide, reviewed what their officers did and decided it was all okie-dokie. And their bosses, who didn't require more of the sergeants and lieutenants who reviewed use of force incidents by filing reports laden with cliches and phrases that were likely saved in their computers. So the six judges that police officers went to time and time again to obtain search warrants that were based on old information, relied on unreliable confidential informants, and otherwise didn't meet the level of proof needed to bust into somebody's home in the middle of the night. Tell us all who they are. The bombshell Department of Justice report on the pattern and practices of the Louisville Metro Police Department that Attorney General Merrick Garland dropped on the city Wednesday fell short in one area. When it laid out 
the list of things done by Louisville police officers that violate people's constitutional rights, and when it showed how supervisors overlooked these things, and when it said police routinely sought out six judges to sign search warrants, it didn't say who any of them are. We need to know. We deserve to know. We must know if these officers who assaulted, pepper sprayed, and humiliated our citizens are still on the streets. We need to know if they have been or will be provided with better training in hopes that their conduct changes. And we need to know if they have been punished for the crap they did. And if they're no longer on the force, we need to know where they went so people in neighboring communities can know what to look for in their policing. We need to know if their bosses who looked the other way and effectively covered up bad policing are still leading young officers on the police force. Or we need to know if they have gone on to cover up bad policing in other departments. We need to know if the judges, who were the first choice of police officers when trying to obtain search warrants, are still on the bench. So we can look for patterns in their decisions that might explain why police officers wanted them and not others to review the warrants. We deserve to know. We elected them. Let them speak up and defend themselves. The Department of Justice report listed more than a dozen egregious examples of why it determined the police force had a pattern of using excessive force, of violating people's constitutional rights, and discriminating against people of color and those with behavioral health issues. These were not one-off situations. The pattern appears to be so widespread that it would be hard for people, especially minorities and those with behavioral disorders, to trust any police officers they come in contact with. That's just how it is. The Fraternal Order of Police released a statement Wednesday saying the report should be challenged and that it's an unfair assessment of the great work that is accomplished daily by the vast majority of LMPD officers. Fine. The city needs to release the names of those mentioned in the report. It needs to release the documentation the Department of Justice investigators saw and the FOP can give its take on each of those episodes in which the DOJ say police abuse their power. I want to hear specifics from both the accusers and those who stand accused. In his statement at the press conference, Greenberg promised to do everything possible and everything necessary to correct the mistakes of the past and heal the wounds left on our community. Our goal is to make LMPD the most trusted trained, and transparent police department in America, he said. That transparency begins with telling us who did this and naming the names of those responsible for this cruel and embarrassing breach of the public's trust. And Joseph Girth can be reached at 502 or by email at jgerth at courierjournal.com. 
Now on to other news. Next, Russian advance stalls in Bakhmut. Russia's advance seems to have stalled in Moscow's campaign to capture the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut, a leading think tank said in an assessment of the longest ground battle of the war. The Washington-based Institute for the Study of War said there was no confirmed advances by Russian forces in Bakhmut. Russian forces and units from the Kremlin-controlled paramilitary Wagner Group continued to launch ground attacks in the city, but there was no evidence that they were able to make any progress, ISW said late Saturday. The report cited the spokesperson of the Ukrainian Armed Forces Eastern Group, Sergei Seravati, who said that fighting in Bakhmut had been more intense this last week than the previous one. And according to Cervati, there were 23 clashes in the city over the previous 24 hours. The ISW report comes following claims of Russia's progress last week. The UK Defense Ministry said Saturday that paramilitary units from the Kremlin-controlled Wagner Group had seized most of eastern Bakhmut, with a river flowing through the city now marking the front line of the fighting. The assessment highlighted that Russia's assault will be difficult to sustain without more significant personnel losses. The mining city of Bakhmut is located in Ukraine's eastern Donetsk province, one of four regions of Ukraine that Russian President Vladimir Putin illegally annexed last year. Russia's military campaign opened to take control of Bakhmut in August, and both sides have experienced staggering casualties. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has vowed not to retreat. In its latest report Sunday, the UK defense minister said that the impact of the heavy casualties Russia is continuing to suffer in Ukraine varies dramatically across the country. The ministry's intelligence update said that the major cities of Moscow and St. Petersburg remain relatively unscathed, particularly among members of the Russian elite. In contrast, many of Russia's eastern regions, the death rate as a percentage of the population is 30 to 40 times higher than in Moscow. The report highlighted that ethnic minorities often take the biggest hit. In the southern Askak, Tron region, for example, about 75% of casualties come from the minority Kazakh and Tartar populations. Russia's mounting casualties are reflected in a loss of government control of the country's information fear, ISW said. The think tank said Russian Foreign Ministry spokesperson Maria Zakharova confirmed infighting in the Kremlin intercircle and that Kremlin has effectively ceded control over the country's information space with Putin unable to readily gain control. The ISW sees Zakharova's comments made at a forum on the practical and technological aspects of information and cognitive warfare in modern realities in Moscow as noteworthy and in line with the think tank's long-standing assessments about the deteriorating Kremlin regime and information space control dynamics. In a separate statement, Zakharova said Sunday that the next round of talks regarding extending the Black Sea grain deal will be held on Monday in Geneva. 
The meeting will see a Russian delegation meet with top U.N. officials before the deal's latest extension that expires on March 18th. The wartime agreement that unblocked grain shipments from Ukraine and helped temper rising global food prices was last extended by four months in November. The deal, which Ukraine and Russia signed in separate agreements with the U.N. and Turkey on July 22nd, established a safe, safe shipping corridor in the Black Sea and inspection procedures to address concerns that cargo vessels might carry weapons or launch attacks. Ukraine and Russia are key global suppliers of wheat, barley, sunflower oil, and other food to countries in Africa, the Middle East, and parts of Asia, where millions of impoverished people lack enough to eat. Russia was also the world's top exporter of fertilizer before the war. A loss of those supplies following Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022 had pushed up global food prices and fueled concerns of a hunger crisis in poorer countries. Elsewhere in Ukraine, Russian attacks over the previous day killed at least five people and wounded another seven across Ukraine's Donsk and Kherson regions, local Ukrainian authorities reported on Sunday morning. Donsk Governor Pavlo Kirilenko said that two people were killed in the region, one in the city of Konstantinivka and one in the village of Toniki. Four further civilians were wounded. Also in the Donsk province, Slovyansk Mayor Vadim Lyak said the power grid and subway lines were damaged by Russian shelling on Sunday but didn't report any casualties. Local officials in the southern Kherson province confirmed that Russian forces fired 29 times on Ukrainian-controlled territory in the region on Saturday, with residential areas of the region capital Kherson coming under fire three times. Three people died in the province, and three were wounded. A woman was wounded in the Russian shelling in the village of Birotska on Sunday just outside of Kherson. In Ukraine's northern Kharkiv province, the Kharkiv, Chukov, and Kupiansk districts came under fire, but no civilian casualties were reported. The head of Ukraine's southern Miolav province, Governor Vitaly Kim, said Sunday morning that the town of Okachiv, at the mouth of the Dnieper River, came under artillery fire in the early hours of Sunday. Cars were set ablaze, while private houses and high-rise buildings sustained damage. But no casualties were reported. Four astronauts fly SpaceX back home. Four space station astronauts returned to Earth late Saturday after a quick SpaceX flight home. Their capsules splashed down in the Gulf of Mexico just off the Florida coast near Tampa. The U.S.-Russian-Japanese crew spent five months at the International Space Station arriving last October. Besides dodging space junk, the astronauts had to deal with a pair of leaking Russian capsules docked into the orbiting outpost and the urgent delivery of a replacement craft for the station's other crew members. Led by NASA's Nicole Mann, the first Native American woman to fly in space, the astronauts checked out of the station early Saturday morning. Less than 19 hours later, their Dragon capsule was bobbing in the sea as they awaited pickup. Earlier in the week, high winds and waves in the splashdown zones kept them at the station a few extra days, and their replacements arrived more than a week ago. 
That was one heck of a ride, man, radioed moments after the splashdown. We're happy to be home. Man, a member of Northern California's Wailaki of the Round Valley Indian tribes, said she couldn't wait to feel the wind on her face, smell fresh grass, and enjoy some delicious earth food. Japanese astronaut Kiyochi Wataka craved sushi, while Russian cosmonaut Anna Kalinka wanted to drink hot tea from a real cup, not from plastic bag. NASA astronaut Josh Casada's to-do list included getting a rescue dog for his family. Please don't tell our two cats, he joked before departing the space station. Remaining behind at the space station are three Americans, three Russians, and one from the United Arab Republics. Wataka, Japan's spaceflight champion, has now logged more than 500 days in space, over five missions dating back to NASA's shuttle era. Finally, man fatally shoots self after living with a corpse. Authorities on Sunday continued to investigate what led a man to fatally shoot himself just before deputies entered his home and found he had been living for months with a corpse. Neighbors contacted the Harris County Sheriff's Office on Saturday evening about concerns that they hadn't seen one of the men who lived in the home for months, said Deputy Thomas Gillian, an agency spokesman. In West Houston, deputies did notice that there was a lot of flies and a bad odor from one end of the house. After entering the house, the deputies heard a shot and found the man of a body, the body of a man with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. In another adjoining bedroom, they did find the body of a male that also had been severely decomposed, Gillian said, citing a time frame of at least several months. Investigators believe the two men had lived together, but were trying to determine other details of their relationship. Whew. This concludes the readings of the first section of the Courier-Journal for today, Monday, March 13th. Stay tuned for the Metro section to immediately follow. Your reader has been Rod Brotherton. Now to continue reading from the Courier-Journal for Monday, March 13th, we turn to the Metro section. Your reader is Vicki Turpiano. We'll read the obituaries first. We read the name, the age, and the location. If you'd like further information on any of the obituaries, please call us during the weekdays at 859-422-422. 6390, and we'll be glad to read the entire obituary for you. I'll repeat that number at the end of the listings. Elijah Addison Jr., 81, Hardensburg. Norma Jean Brinksneeder, 87, Tell City. William Lee Carter, 91, Elizabethtown. Geneva Caven Goff Chase, 88, Greensburg. May Kala, 91, Salem. Brian Fetterman, 56, DuPont. James Jim Fennell, 
77 Louisville, Mark Stephen Fitch, 62 Crestwood, Hyacinth Tootsie Howard, 98 Louisville, Charles Keaton, 61 Richmond, Floyd Ray Llewellyn, 88 Louisville, Merle Jean Miracle Miller, 85 Simpsonville, William Glenn Mills, 79 Brooks, John W. Noltemeyer, 69 Shepherdsville, Charles Charlie Richardson, 83 Campbellsville, Leola B. Rout, 98 Mount Washington, Michael Sticka, 68 Madison, John W. Troxell, 72 Eminence, Marvin Rocky Lee Wells, 65 Salem, and Joellen Yap, 65 Louisville. Again, if you would like further information on any of the listings today, call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390 and we'll be glad to read the entire item to you. Please forgive me for any mispronunciations, either on the names here or in the continuing articles. In our first article from the Metro section, Collegiate Denied Requests to Demolish Buildings, and this is from Bailey Loosemore of the Louisville Courier-Journal. Demolition Denied. Louisville Collegiate School will not be allowed to tear down Yorktown Apartments. The Cherokee Triangle Architectural Review Committee ruled Wednesday. At a meeting where emotions ran high, representatives for the school presented their case. The question, they said, was not whether Louisville needs to protect affordable housing the apartments provide, but whether the Yorktown buildings contribute architecturally to the historic Cherokee Triangle neighborhood. City planning and design employees agreed the buildings do not contribute, saying other multifamily structures in the neighborhood provide better examples of the colonial revival style, as Yorktown is designated. But in a 3-2 vote, members of the Architectural Committee determined Yorktown does contribute to the area and that demolishing the complex would adversely affect the district's distinctive characteristics. I would really be disheartened to see this create a precedent for all of those to be demolished and create a parking lot, committee member Ashlyn Ackerman said, referencing 21 other multifamily buildings the city identified as fitting Yorktown's same style. Collegiate can appeal the committee's decision. Why Collegiate Wants to Demolish Yorktown Apartments Collegiate filed a request to demolish the apartments in November. The school had bought the property in 2015 with the goal of using it for a future expansion, and the buildings had since become unusable for habitation, representatives wrote in an application. The school proposed expanding existing parking on the site for its campus with plans to potentially build an early childhood development center or theater there at a later date. The parking, collegiate officials say, is especially needed. Teachers park in the neighborhood. Teachers park in the neighborhood, taking limited spaces away from residents. 
Head of school Robert McRae added the school would plant trees in the lot that add to the area's canopy. I think it's going to be a positive impact on the community, he told the Courier-Journal. Why neighbors and renters have pushed back. Residents in the neighborhood have been split on the proposal, with some agreeing Collegiate needs more space to alleviate parking and traffic issues. Safety and traffic concerns around the school are critical and must be addressed, Cherokee Triangle resident and collegiate parent Macaulay Adams said at Wednesday's meeting. The school's board has studied these issues for a number of years. The bulk of public feedback, however, has come from people opposed to the demolition, who say Collegiate has waffled on how the property will be used and that Louisville should protect affordable apartments amid a major housing shortage. The historic character of the neighborhood is one of affordable housing, said attorney and Cherokee Triangle resident Ted Schoes. The diversity of income levels is changing. The change is not for good. For the good. Two residents who live in Yorktown spoke at the meeting, calling on committee members not to grant demolition until school representatives meet with the tenants. While Collegiate has said it's offered tenants financial resources and support finding new homes, the renter said the school hasn't done enough to help them stay in the neighborhood. If they didn't want to be landlords, they shouldn't have bought this property, Patrick McCarthy said. Collegiate let me renew my lease knowing full well they plan to demolish the apartments and kick us all out. Following Wednesday's decision, the Louisville Tenants Union, which has worked to organize Yorktown residents, said it was pleased the ARC voted to deny the demolition. With their money and power, Collegiate fully expected this demolition to go through easily, with no pushback from tenants and neighbors, the union said in a statement. Yorktown tenants and neighbors said no to business as usual for the city's elite. Reach reporter Bailey Loosemore at B-L-O-O-S-E-M-O-R-E at courier-journal.com or 502-582-4646. In the next article from the Metro section, Arena turned into wild country western bar. And this is from Maggie Mendersky of the Louisville Courier-Journal. For one night only, Blake Shelton opened the largest honky-tonk in the state of Kentucky. His back to the honky-tonk, I'm sorry, his back to the honky tour, which hit the KFC Yum Center on Thursday, was just as much about good country music as it was about the deep country vibe. Shelton is a true entertainer, and from the moment the big open neon light flashed behind him on stage, welcoming thousands into this imaginary dark dive bar, he had a mission. He wanted the crowd to drink, dance, and kick it back, as though they were at the kind of club where the memories blur together at the end of the night as smoothly as Shelton's vocals do on stage. As he sang into his second song, Thursday was all about tonight, and Louisville rose to that occasion with a robust enthusiasm. You didn't come here to listen to me talk. 
You came here to drink and hear country music, he shouted out to the crowd before playing Guy with the girl. Then he brought in some of his own drinking songs with sangria and neon lights. In the past two decades, Shelton has become a mainstay at the top of the country charts, and on Thursday, he used that longevity to appeal to his fans from across generations. His band quieted for a few minutes midway through the show, and Shelton was just left with his crowd and his guitar. The superstar approached the whole moment as though he were in a space as intimate as Headliner's Music Hall, or even like he knew the crowd's favorite drink. This is the point of the show, he says, when people always ask him to play old songs from the beginning of his career. At that moment, a fan shouted that they wanted to hear Playboys of the Southwestern World. Someone, Shelton says, always wants to hear that oldie from 2003. Really? You want to hear that, he said? Well, I never do this. With a quick Google search after the show, I learned that he probably has. With the strum of Shelton's guitar, the packed house went back in time as easily as if they had plugged in an old favorite on jukebox. From there, Shelton lingered in his early 2000s hits, but he slowed it down some with The More I Drink and Austin. He ended the show by bringing the crowd back to a loud, savor-every-moment, last-call-style finish with Hillbilly Bone, Boys Round Here, and God's Country. For two hours, Shelton made that arena feel like a wild country western bar where just about anything could happen, and he was the bartender, slinging out music instead of shots. What about Carly Pierce at the Yum Center? Perhaps there was one thing, though, even more sincere than Shelton wanting everyone to have a big old time on a Thursday night. It would be a crime not to mention Kentucky's very own Carly Pierce, who opened the show and stole the heart of seemingly everyone in the audience. The Grammy winner and Taylor Mill native charmed the crowd with her talent, but also with the love of her home state. In between songs, she grinned with evident joy and waved out to the crowd. The first time she ever heard one of her songs on the radio, it was on a Louisville station, she told the crowd. Hi, she said, beaming out to the Kentuckians. Hi, I see you. I want you to know I see you all. Pierce also took a few moments to honor a fellow Kentuckian, the late Loretta Lynn. She credits the country music icon for setting the stage for women like her to break into the genre. Pierce released a tribute to Lynn in 2021, Dear Miss Loretta, and when she sang it on Thursday, it was almost as though the crowd of Kentuckians paused in a deep understanding reverence. You can tell I'm glad to be back in the state of Kentucky, she said. Later, when she joined Shelton on stage for Lonely Tonight in a surprise duet, the crowd roared in excitement. I needed a new duet partner, Shelton told the crowd after a thunderous applause. She's just too good. Features columnist Maggie Mendersky writes about what makes Louisville, Southern Indiana, and Kentucky unique, wonderful, 
and occasionally a little weird. If you've got something in your family, your town, or even your closet that fits that description, she wants to hear from you. Say hello at M-M-E-N-D-E-R-S-K-I at courier-journal.com or 502-582-4053. You can follow along on Instagram and Twitter at Maggie Mendersky. In the last article from the Metro page, Gravely Brewing Company chooses new on-site food truck vendor. And this is from Dahlia Gabor of the Louisville Courier-Journal. Gravely Brewing Company has a new food partner starting at the end of March. A food truck concept called Lil Toasty's Food Truck, created by the team behind Toasty's Tavern, will take up a post at Gravely, 514 Baxter Avenue, beginning March 22nd. The stationary food truck will create familiar favorites, such as the popular Toasty's Burger, as well as new dishes exclusive to the outpost. The team at Toasty's has crafted an atmosphere, experience, and culture that's in a league of its own. On top of all of that, they consistently churn out delicious food that will turn you into a cult follower of their cuisine after just a few bites. Gravely Brewing co-founder and president Nathaniel Gravely said in a release, I've personally loved dining at the tavern and am ecstatic to work alongside their team, and I think their food and our beer make for a dynamic combo. Toasting's Tavern opened in 2020, owned by a group of people including the team behind New Wave Burritos. Toasty serves sandwiches, burgers, pimento cheese balls, and fried mushrooms. Toasty's partner, Nate Sturdivant, said Toasty seemed like a natural fit for the Gravely stylings. Lil Toasty's food truck will operate in the same physical spot Mayan Street Food occupied until the end of 2021. You can reach food reporter Dahlia Gabor at dghabour at gannett.com. Here's an article uh, from regarding uh, current news in the area. JPCS start time proposal. Why would so many middle and high school students still start early? And this is from Krista Johnson of the Louisville Courier-Journal. One of the reasons JCPS Superintendent Marty Poyle says the district school start times need to be changed is that older students need more sleep, pointing to research that shows getting up too early is not good for adolescents' overall well-being. This argument, though, has led many in the community to question why, then, there are still about 16,000 middle and high school students in the district who will be starting at the same time next year under his proposal, even as dozens of elementary schools would move to an even later start time than this year's. Disappointed, Sophia Marsano posted to Twitter, Poyo states that a later start time is better physically and mentally for students, adolescents, but my high schoolers will continue to start school at 7.40 a.m., this proposal seems solely designed to reduce the number of buses and or drivers needed. When might your school start next year? Another parent posted, 
Six of the largest high schools remain at a 7.40 start time, all other high schools at 8.40 a.m. This is unacceptable. Plan's purpose is to help physical, mental health of all teens with extra sleep. Early group not getting any help here and is completely unfair. Must revise plan. Research recommends teens get 8 to 10 hours of sleep each night, but with body clocks that run later than children and adults, they often have trouble falling asleep before 11 p.m. The impact, according to National Nonprofit Partnership to End Addiction, can cause poor performance at school, increased car accidents, depression, anxiety, weight gain, and an immune, a weakened immune system. Sleep is an essential bodily function for everyone, the organization's website says. But for teens especially, it's the body's time to repair the damage of the day, regulate hormones, consolidate memory, solidify learning, and restore energy so they can wake up and do it all over again the next day. JCPS changes start times for schools. The reason some JCPS teens won't benefit from a later start time has to do with the logistics of the proposal, according to the district. These 18 middle schools and high schools would have the same 7.40 a.m. start times under the proposal. Barrett Middle, Conway Middle, Dubois Middle, Echo Trail Middle, Grace James Middle, Jefferson County Traditional Middle, Johnson Middle, Lassiter Middle, Stewart Middle, Atherton High, Butler High, Central High, Mail High, Manual High, Moore High, Bennett, K-12 School, Pathfinder, Virtual K-12 School, and Waller-Williams, K-11 School. Meanwhile, Brown, a K-12 school that does not receive busing, would keep its 8 a.m. start. Many of the schools above are magnets. The reason those don't have new times, District Spokeswoman Carolyn Callahan said, is related to the district's depot schedule. Magnet students are picked up throughout the county and taken to a hub where they then get on another bus to get to their schools. This process often takes longer than traditional routes. While the proposal would add a third depot run, the district wants to avoid having elementary students at the hub while middle and high schoolers are also there. So that means more start times wouldn't be changed, Callahan said. In the above group, there are six traditional schools that Poyo said he would like to see eventually move to later start times. Conway, Lassiter, Moore, Echo Trail, and Stewart Middles, and Atherton High. The hope, Poyo said, is that the district will be able to get these schools starting an hour later, too, through efficiency once the proposed system is in place. The proposal does succeed in moving 34 middle and high schools to an 8.40 a.m. start time. Board members have the final say on whether this proposal passes or if there will be revisions, but small changes can impact the entire system. 
During the board's February meeting, none of the members brought up any concerns about older students who would still be starting at 7.40 a.m., but District 5's Linda Duncan did express concerns about elementary school students walking to bus stops when it will still be dark out in the morning. Of the district's elementary schools, 59 will start at 8.40 a.m. or later, while 24 will start at 8.10 or earlier. Corey Scholl, the district's board vice president, chairman, I'm sorry, told the Courier-Journal he has heard from families across his district who have different concerns about the proposal. I think the entire community identifies that and is sort of empathetic of the need for us to do something about our transportation issues. But families are responding based on how the proposal impacts them, he said. I think the proposal as it stands represents the best attempt to really accommodate the needs of all of our students and families, Schulz said, adding that when it comes to transporting 60,000 students, I think it has been a big challenge to give everybody what they want. You can reach reporter Krista Johnson at kjohnson3 at gannett.com. Here's another interesting article uh, on local news. Can Catholics eat meat on St. Patrick's Day this year? What the Louisville Archbishop says, and this is from Ray Johnson of the Louisville Courier-Journal. Louisville Archbishop Shelton Febre issued a dispensation from eating meat on St. Patrick's Day for the 24 counties in his jurisdiction, said Cecilia Price, spokesperson for the Archdiocese of Louisville. People of the Catholic faith normally abstain from eating meat on Fridays during Lent, which takes place between February 22nd and April 6th this year. It's been several years since St. Patrick's Day, a holiday falling on March 17th in honor of the 5th century bishop, has fallen on a Friday, leaving Catholics wondering if they'll be allowed to indulge in their favorite corned beef dinners on the holidays. There are 110 parishes in Fabra's central Kentucky jurisdiction, Price said, including in Jefferson, Bullitt, and Washington counties. To find out if there is a dispensation for counties outside these areas, parishioners can use Catholic News Agency's online map. The bishop has issued a dispensation without any additional conditions. What is Lent? Lent is a 40-day period focused on prayer, fasting, and almsgiving to prepare for the Easter holiday. It begins on Ash Wednesday, the Wednesday before the first Sunday of Lent, and ends at sundown on Holy Thursday. It's traditional for people to abstain from meat during Lent, but many also choose to practice self-discipline by giving up other things like their phone or other food they can fast from. St. Patrick's Day marks the 5th century bishop's death. St. Patrick is the patron saint of Ireland, and the holiday is celebrated internationally. What if I don't want to eat meat on St. Patrick's Day? For those who want to continue abstaining from meat on St. Patrick's Day, 
they are able to attend one of the church's designated fish fry dinners. Abstinence law only considers meat to come from land animals, like cows or sheep. You can contact Ray Johnson at rnjohnson at gannett.com. This is an interesting article um, because this can vary from area to area. And I live in Illinois, and we have not received a dispensation. So interesting to know what's going on in other places. We'll end with another interesting food article here from Dahlia Gabor. This popular Atlanta-based wings and burger chain is coming to Louisville. Here's where. A wings and burger chain is coming to the Highlands. According to signs posted on the restaurant's door, Atlanta-based WNB Factory is opening a location at 1019 Bardstown Road in the space that previously held La Q, which closed in January. WNB Factory was founded in 1997 by two friends, Troy Poyo and Shin Kang. The restaurant has dozens of franchises, locations, in Georgia, Alabama, Virginia, Texas, and Ohio. WNB serves certified Angus beef steak burgers on brioche buns or pretzel buns and signature craft burgers, including a teriyaki-glazed Hawaiian burger, onion ring bacon burger, Korean-style barbecue burger, and mushroom burger. There are also turkey burgers, a vegetable burger, and an impossible burger. WNB Factory offers 24 flavors of wings in orders of 6, 8, 10, 12, 18, 30, 60, and 100 pieces, plus combo meals, chicken sandwiches, chicken tenders, cheesesteaks, rice, fried rice, salads, sides, and shakes. You can reach reporter Dahlia Gabor at D-G-H-A-B-O-U-R at gannett.com. This concludes excerpts from the Courier-Journal for Monday, March 13th. Your reader has been Vicki Trupiano. Please stay tuned for continued programming on Radio I.